Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be here and speak with you again. So turn to First Peter, as, as Joel said. Uh, we'll be in chapter 1. Uh, First Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at three verses uh, for where we will spend most of our time, I guess, but we'll gather up context to, to stay there for a while. So I'm going to read uh, for us uh, verses 10, 11, and 12. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. So it says there, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, Peter is building a case and he's going somewhere. Uh, but I'm going to propose something that we don't do and, and we really won't do, but I'm going to say it this way. Let's, let's just cut verses 10, 11, and 12 out. And let's read from the prior verses and go to verse 13. Because it actually will work if we do that. Uh, Let's look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. We could go on. So uh, from a human standpoint, we could could cut those verses out. (laughs) uh, And the flow and the logic wouldn't suffer thing. But Peter has inserted what basically is a parenthetical uh, section here in the flow of the text, and he has a reason. He's going somewhere with this, and that's where I want us to dwell today. I want us to think about what is Peter getting at in these three verses, and how does that dovetail into the message that he's working toward? Now, there's one little word that the verse starts out with, um, in verse 10, and in the ESV, it says, uh, concerning. If you have a NASB, what does that say? As to this salvation. As to this salvation. Uh, anybody else have anything? Of. Of this salvation. Now, there's one word in there, peri, peri. We know the word in our English. Perimeter would be around, concerning, or about. That's what the word is, is peri. Um, and so the translators came across it in different ways, translated it different ways. Uh, ESV chose concerning, which is a good translation. It's just one little word. And yet that one little word gives us a clue that he's pivoting somewhere, he's going somewhere, he's, he's going to give us some information about something that we wouldn't have otherwise. And the reason he's doing it is he's leading up to allow us to see, hear, maybe understand, grasp, um, internalize a message. So this concerning means he's going to pull everything in, be all-encompassing, give a full comprehensive understanding, uh, consideration, and cover all the bases. So what is it that's concerning? It says concerning salvation. Concerning salvation. So we're going to dwell on salvation, and, and I've kind of titled this, Surprised by the Significance, the Scope, 
and the suspense of our salvation. Surprised by the significance, scope, and suspense of salvation. So those are the three things we're going to look at. So, significance of salvation. Now, we have a vantage point that the readers here wouldn't have because we have, as Paul says, the whole counsel of God. So we have the canon of Scripture, the 66, 27 new, uh, and uh, the Old Testament together, full uh, Scripture, and we have that vantage point. Uh, And so we can see salvation, as it were, from Genesis to Revelation. And we have an understanding from that. We know what it means. We understand as God has taught us. It's the good news. It's the good news of salvation. It is the gospel. It is salvation. And salvation implies there's risks, there's um, troubles, there's needs from which people must be saved. They're lost, they're fallen, they're headed for destruction. But it also implies reward and security that we were being released, preserved, kept, protected from those risks, from those dangers. And really we're being saved from God himself because it's the wrath of God that causes those things, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. And yet the one who we are condemned before for those reasons is the one who also is our Savior. And so the the scripture is a book of salvation. God is a saving God. When the angel came to Joseph, do you remember what he told Joseph that the name of the baby would be? Easy. (laughs) Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Yahashua, Jeshua, Joshua. Uh, Jesus in in Greek. (laughs) Greece. Uh, And Latinized as Jesus. Jehovah, the Lord, saves. God is a saving God. So our perspective of salvation should be measured by all those things. It's biblical revelation in its total. The meaning, the reach, the expectation. Um, I love the work of an of a author, Graham Scroggie. Probably not a familiar name, if you would have ever heard of him. But he wrote a book uh, titled this, The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. And it's a synthetical view of redemption, of salvation, from the beginning of Scripture in Genesis to the end in Revelation. The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. It's a, it's a work worth reading for what it is. Uh, Scroggie, by the way, was the fifth pastor after Spurgeon at the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. Here in this text, though, Peter is drawing us in with some language that's going to evoke and should evoke in us a salvation wonder. So Peter itself is also a book of salvation, a book that covers salvation. Look at verses 4. We'll start there. Verse 4. It says there, an inheritance, those who have been saved, an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And then chapter 2. Uh, in verse 2 says, Like newborn infants, we're to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it we, you, we, may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the salvation Peter's going to share 
is already salvation in verse 4 of chapter 1. It is a resulting salvation in chapter nine, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And it is a salvation in chapter 2 that implies a growth on our behalf. So salvation. The word he uses here is soterios, uh, which in theology, you pick up any systematic theology book, and you thumb through and you get to the doctrine of salvation, and it is called soteriology. Drawn from that very word, soteria, salvation. And you thumb through it, and you, and you would pick up a lot of other big words that, as believers, we're somewhat familiar with, but to the unwitting might be a little intimidating. You read through words like redemption, election, predestination, justification, sanctification, propitiation, expiation, adoption, imputation, substitution, glorification. That's 11. I wonder if I hit them all. There's probably more than I drew just from that. So it's a big subject. There's a lot to say about it. There's a lot to comprehend about it. There's a lot to dwell on. So we really can't miss this. This is something that's incredibly important. It's important to the book of the scriptures as a whole, and it's important to the book of 1 Peter in specific. Salvation's holistic. It's holistic with an H because it's sacred, divine, sanctified, godly, righteous. And it's holistic with a W because it's complete, universal, all-inclusive. So we really can't slice and dice or disassociate salvation from everything else because it's all-encompassing. Uh, sometimes you hear of churches or ministries where uh, maybe they're focused on um, one thing a lot. Um, and so they, they might be churches that, or, or ministries that we might call John 3.16 ministries where um, they preach the gospel and they're, they're about soul winning or evangelism. And that certainly is, is definitely uh, in the word of God. But it, um, in those situations, sometimes it can be where those things are isolated from the rest of your life. There's this evangelistic point in time. There's these episodic events. There's these messages and, and, and uh, campaigns or whatever it may be that's focused on salvation. But it doesn't really reach much further than just those things. It doesn't permeate throughout all of theology or throughout all of your life as a believer. But I want to remind you this, and you can flip over a couple of pages. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. The author of 1 Peter, who wrote also 2 Peter, is the one who said this. Uh, verse 1, he says he's writing this to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with, the, with his or ours, meaning the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That salvation, the very roots, the very comprehensiveness of that salvation is what addresses everything of our life. It bleeds and spreads over into every single area that we encompass in our lives. And so that's where Peter is going in this first chapter. So, concerning salvation, there's one more word after the word concerning. And it's just this, the word this. Concerning which salvation? Concerning what salvation? To these readers, he's talking about a specific thing, and that is this salvation. Which salvation is that? The one that they have. And he's talked about it. So we back up. Let's, let's look back. Bear with me if I 
uh, repeat things I've said uh, before, but let's back up and look at this salvation. So look back at verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 9. It says there, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is inseparable from grace and faith. We know from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we've been saved through faith. That is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of not on the basis of works, um, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Faith and grace. So there's going to be a thread here of faith as we work our way back. So this faith that leads to this salvation is an outcome um, of that faith. This is an outcome of that faith. And so here we see that there's an exhilaration from that, that this faith has caused an inspiration or a hope or an encouragement and affection in these believers because it says in the verse 8 right before that, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. So there's an exhilarated faith, an affected faith with an outcome. Well, let's back up some more. Look at verse 7. It says there, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only is it an inspired, exhilarated, affected faith, it's also an evidenced faith. There's a genuineness to your faith. There's a precious value of that faith because of the testing that has brought that to light. The believers here are rejoicing because the trials they're going through are actually demonstrating the faith God has given them And it's showing up in the way that they're going through these trials. And they're standing firm in their faith. And it's proving an assurance and a confidence in their lives because that faith isn't just a cognitive belief. It is a real world living out faith that shows evidences and genuineness that it's really in their life. Now back up to verse 5. Here's the faith that precedes that. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So this faith is a faith that's empowered by God. Not a faith generated in themselves, not a worked up belief system, not a neutral cognitive um, belief ideology, but an empowered faith that it says there also guards them. It's amazing that faith can be the thing that God gives. Faith can be the thing that manifests our relationship to him. And faith is the very thing that God uses to guard us in our salvation. And it says they're guarded through faith for what? A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so what do they do? Again, affection. In this you rejoice. Even if for a little while you're going through these trials. And they're grievous. They're not forever. And this faith that's empowered in you is guarding you through those things. But then look at verse 3. What really began that faith? What really accomplished that faith? It says there, according to His great mercy, He caused us. It was a faith acted upon them that produced a birth. Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it zerated faith in verses 8 and 9 with affection, inspiration, encouragement. A genuine faith of precious, precious value in verse 7. 
an empowered and an accomplished faith in verses 3, 4, and 5, a faith for salvation that's ready, it says even. But then backing up, it's a predestined faith because in verses 1 and 2, it's who the people are he's addressing. A predestined faith rooted in God's foreknowledge and rooted in the Spirit's accomplishments. So it says there, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, um, they are uh, strangers and aliens. Parapodemois is the name for that. Diaspora, dispersion. Um, the believers who were um, Hellenistic Jews and those that were um, of the uh, Greek and Roman culture were dispersed among these provinces there in Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, nearly covering, covering the whole area we know of as Asia Minor. Those elect exiles are elect, why? Because of verse 2, God's plan, God's four knowledge. And this is how it's accomplished, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And that sanctification does this. It creates obedience to Jesus Christ, and it creates a promise or a guarantee by the sprinkling, metaphorically speaking in this respect, sprinkling with his blood. That is a reference back to uh, Exodus, um, when that actually was done to the people of God. But metaphorically speaking in this respect, um, sprinkling with his blood. So, foreknown in the mind of God. It, it, it causes me to think back to Ephesians 1. Um, so let's just turn there, if you will. Let's, I hate not to actually look at it. So, Ephesians 1. Um, look at verse 3, and then we'll skip down. So, blessed be the God and Father, Ephesians 1.3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And just to be quick, we'll go to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is a wisdom grace and an insight grace making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So the foreknowledge is a plan. The foreknowledge is wisdom and insight. He's made known those things to us by the riches of his grace when he's redeemed us. And we're seeing that as a plan for the fullness of time. So taking that into respect of verses 1 and 2 here in 1 Peter 1, it causes us to think about the fact that this faith, this salvation, is really just a big picture of which we as small, minute individuals have been made a part. So, foreknown in God's mind, accomplished by the Spirit, uh, secured by His power, accomplished through our birth that he created, evidenced in genuine faith and preciousness of that faith because of the testing it's gone through, and then faith with outcome and affection. So those things, Peter's reminded these readers, this is the richness, this is the depth, this is the comprehensiveness 
of the salvation that has been so graciously granted to us. And so it's very personal. It's very individual. It's done by God, but it's very focused. So those who know the Lord have these riches. Those who know the Lord, their hearts are stirred by these words. They, they're drawn to this. And these readers, no doubt, were the same. Living in the first century, living under um, the oppression of their neighbors, who would take them to court for any kind of what they thought was strange behavior. Uh, these people who eat uh, bodies and drink blood in secret and who call each other brother and sister are kind of strange. These people um, who are just my odd neighbors. Or these people who our emperor Nero has told us destroyed Rome, caused all these troubles. These are the people that, um, that we don't really want around. And these believers who have been called need answers to these things. Life is tough. There's a lot of struggles. There's a lot of uh, persecution and suffering going on. So, saying all that, Peter pauses in verse 10 and says, well, let me tell you a little bit more. This is very personal. This is very much about you. This is about the struggles you're going through. This is the depth of the riches of God's grace in you personally that He's accomplished. But let me pull you back from that and let me see, let you see a few other perspectives on this salvation. So, look at verses 10 through 12. We'll, we'll spend our time there now. Verses 10 through 12. So here's the thing. I'm going to be kind of uh, take a little liberty here that, that salvation is repeated or renamed a few times in these verses. So obviously, the first instance is when the word actually occurs, salvation. But there's a couple other places it's referred to. Because it goes on from there and says, The prophets who prophesied about the salvation, it's not what it really says, it says, the grace that was to be yours. I would argue that that's a renaming of salvation. Salvation is the grace that was to be yours. And going on, it says that these prophets were searching and inquiring about uh, the, the Spirit of Christ who was telling them that Christ was going to suffer. And so they're searching about this grace, and what they're searching for, it says later on in verse 11, is the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Uh, loosely, we'll say that also renames salvation. Sufferings and glories in Christ. And then in verse 12, it says... They weren't serving themselves, but you in the things. I'm going to argue that that's also renaming salvation. Things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. And then it says in the last phrase, things. I'm going to argue that that also is repeating salvation. Things into which angels long to look. So just stick with me here. It's salvation. It's grace for the prophets that would have become yours it's also sufferings of Christ and His subsequent glories or glories to follow. It's also things that have been announced to you. And it's also things that angels long to look at. Um, that's salvation. There's external perspectives to this salvation that's very personal that God has accomplished in your life as a believer. And yet, you've, and you've appropriated it from His grace. And yet, there's other people involved in this. There's other spectators, uh, parties, participators in this salvation. Um, so, three, three different groups. 
We have prophets, we have preachers, and we have angels. Prophets, preachers, and angels. Again, Peter could have left this out, but in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was brought to bear with the flow of the text. Prophets, four things. They, they prophesy, obviously. They searched and inquired about something, and they also served. Preachers here, it says that they announced, and they obviously preach, synonymous. And then angels, angels watch, and then they long to look. So these three participators, innumerable as they may be, are doing these things. All about salvation, prophesying, searching, inquiring, serving, preaching, announcing, looking, watching, and longing to look at all these things. So, believers in Asia Minor, when you're going through these things, you're going through these things in a bigger context than just where you are. You're going through these things in the comprehensiveness of salvation and other people are involved. And they're involved on behalf of God's glory. It's not really about you. It's not really about me. It's really about God. Those prophets and those preachers and those angels they're seeing, they're, they're, they're part of this, but they're part of this because it's God who's accomplishing it. Um, so let's walk through these three groups. Let's just kind of spend some time uh, on those. So as we said, uh, prophets, they, they prophesy. They prophesy about what? The grace that was to be yours. Now, I wonder what prophets he might be thinking of. Um, so having read this and talked about it a little bit, any ideas of who Peter might think these prophets might be? Speculation. Yeah, any, any place that we can think of where the sufferings and glories may have been mentioned, for sure. Any, any, any other thoughts? We do think about those that we name as prophets. Yeah, Moses was a prophet. So we tend necessarily not to think of him at times, but he was a prophet. Anyone else? Absolutely. Who said that? That's where I'm going. So I think, I think David is maybe who Peter... He may have been thinking of all, so I'm not going to say that's not true. I'm just saying I have a reason to think he might be actually be thinking of David. Which is kind of the first thing I thought of, but I think that's who he may be thinking of. King David. Any ideas why? Anyway, we'll get there. Um, so grace. There's a thread of grace here. So, so they're really they're prophesying about grace, the grace that was to be yours. Um, interestingly, grace, you can trace that thread in so many places. And, and in First Peter, it's definitely repeated over and over. Um, here it says the grace that was to be yours. Verse 13 is going to talk about the grace that will be brought to you. Chapter 2, verse 7 says that husbands and wives share in the grace of life. That's salvation. Uh, God's very grace is in chapter 4. God gives grace to the humble, chapter 5. And also verse 10 of chapter 5. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the God of grace. But look at verse 12. Flip a few pages of chapter 5. Look at verse 12. It seems simplistic, and yet it isn't. What is the real purpose of this whole book? Why did he really write this? Verse 12. He says it plainly, and sometimes it seems, well, if it's that plain, it probably is more than that, but I keep struggling with this, and I think in the end this is it. I have written briefly to you, he says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Sometimes it's just the very thing in front of us that we seem to overlook that is the very answer that we need for what we are going through. So what's the answer Peter offers to these people and their troubles? The true grace of God. Stand in it. Be firm in it. So these prophets, they are prophesying about that. It was a grace that was going to come. It wasn't a grace that they had. And they searched, verse 10, the last part, back in chapter 1, verse 10. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring the person and the time. They wanted to know, who is this? Who, who exactly is this? And when is this actually going to happen? Because it was being told to them. I don't think, if I can elaborate from opinion a little bit, I don't think they actually wrote down words and said, what am I saying here? I think they actually probably understood it from their language standpoint. But as they reflected on it, they began to realize there's more to this than what I'm understanding. I may understand what I'm writing. I may understand what I'm saying. But that's not all there is. There's some things here that I don't get. There's some things here I don't understand. And so they searched and inquired. There's something we don't get from our English that the original helps us with that when these readers read this, they got it, but we don't get it because we don't know this. Um, and this, and there's two things. It's this. There's word order that's different in the original, and there's inflection of the words that's different. So we don't catch this in English. So um, I'm going to have to skip ahead of my notes because it was further. Um, so here's, if I really read it somewhat in order of the way it's written, it would sound like this. It would say, concerning which salvation... Seek out and search out the prophets who concerning the grace toward you did prophesy. If you really want a literal translation, you don't really want that because that's the way your Bibles would read. It would be a little hard to catch up um, to really get the English flow of thought. But when those readers, readers read that, they understood. He put those words at the beginning. So if you put them at the beginning, that means I'm emphasizing that. That's important. And then... The word seek and search, in English we use the word out after them to kind of give them emphasis. But in their words, the word out was in front. So it would have been out seek and out search, just to kind of transliterate it into English. So they would have caught on the fact that these prophets were really consumed. They were really, really interested. They were like digging deep into finding out what this really meant. It was not something that they were just glibly or neutrally trying to figure out or just some academic exercise. They were drawn to this. Um, so anything you ever are pulled to from curiosities, from uh, struggles of life, from interests in your life, you don't really have to motivate yourself outside yourself. 
to cause yourself to do that. You, you are just motivated within. You are drawn to find out about things, no matter what that thing may be, a person, uh, an activity, uh, an interest of some sort. I think that's where the prophets were. They just were drawn, seeking out, searching out, what does this really mean? What is, what is the real background to what I'm actually saying and writing? Uh, Matthew 13, Jesus kind of gives us an idea of this. Matthew 13 says this, Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, Blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. And so there is a righteous man and a prophet man who would have desired but could not know. But these men wanted to be on the inside. They wanted to know these things. And two things about the Messiah rose as mountain peaks in prophecy, and that is that he would, he would suffer and he would receive unparalleled glory. So I, I do think of Isaiah 53, uh, 52 at the end, and 53. Classic passage we go to describing uh, that God would crush Christ, the Messiah, that he was pleased to bruise him, um, that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, that uh, he was uh, so marred and um, unpleasant to look at. Even in Acts 2.23, Peter himself talks about the hands of evil men who uh, crucified and killed him, lawless men, in fact. And we, we see that in those passages and alluded to in other places. But just as much as that, glories, resurrection glory, um, exaltation glory. In fact, John 17, before Christ went to the cross, he, he prayed and asked the Father to give him the glory he had before the world began. But then back in Isaiah 52, there's a manifestation glory um, right amongst all the suffering and later glory in, in, in verse 15 or 52 of Isaiah says this, Kings will shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them, they shall see. So he'll have glory and has it now at resurrection, at his exaltation at the right hand of the Father, and at his manifestation before all living beings of all times when we stand before him in the future. So these, these prophets, they prophesied, they searched and they inquired. And it's interesting that when you look at the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself did this very thing to those two that were walking along the road. Cleopas and the others, name we don't know. Um, and he said to them, because they were bewildered, um, he said, O foolish ones, and so of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Christ himself went to those very passages and beyond and so perfectly explained from Moses and all the prophets precisely what his suffering and his glory would mean. Um, so Peter here is launching out with this, this theme. He's launching out with these prophets who are doing these things. And he's hinting at a, a, a juxtaposition between suffering and glory. And just to, just to let you know, 
This is the first mention of suffer in this book. Sixteen more times Peter will use the word suffer. So he's, he kept it back for these verses until now. And then he's going to start honing in on it. Likewise, glory is repeated multiple times, 14 times in this book. So this is a recurring theme that he uh, contrasts back and forth. So let's look a little bit at that just real quickly. Look at verse uh, 21 of chapter 2. Look at verse 21. It says, um, well, let's look at verse 19. Back up there, chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here it is, verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I think that's the only time that phrase is used in Scripture, that he literally is an example for us to follow in his steps. Grab me afterwards if I'm wrong, but I think, I think I'm right about that. I could be wrong. Um, so this is one time when what would Jesus do actually would matter. Um, what would Jesus do really is true with suffering uh, in this respect. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Four times the word suffer is in those verses. Verse 13 of chapter 3, look there. Verse 13. Now, believers in Asia Minor, who is there to harm you? Verse 13. If you're zealous for what is good. Well, we usually intuitively think, if I do what's really good and I'm zealous about it, no one would really hurt me for that, would they? But verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 15. In your hearts, honor the Christ, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Um, always being prepared to make a defense. And then verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Three more times, suffer. And the contrast again, Christ suffered, and he left us an example. He suffered for us as well. Um, look at chapter, one, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. A challenge, an exhortation from Peter says there, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Later in chapter uh, 4, uh, says, Rejoice, verse 13, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's the two side by side. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time, verse 17, for judgment to begin at the household of God. 
And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You can't say any of that unless you've gone through salvation. The basis for all of that is what Peter's doing in chapter 1. Salvation. Um, Then chapter 5 and verse 10, the promise. After you have suffered a little while, God himself, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So these prophets, they prophesied. These prophets, they searched and they inquired. Back in chapter 1, they also served. Because it says there, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, in, in the middle of all this, they never got resolution completely. Because it says it was revealed to them that they weren't serving their time. They weren't serving their own situation. It says they were serving you, us. They were serving us. Now there's progressive revelation. There's, there's revelation that was not known before that later becomes known. Now there's a, there's a key term that Scripture uses for that. Any ideas? Peter, uh, Paul uses this word. Mystery? Yes. Mystery, mentioned a couple of times. Previously unknown, but now known. In fact, um, Paul says this way in Ephesians 3 that uh, the mystery is made known to him by revelation as he is written. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And this is how he says it. This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And his ministry was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, but also, it says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That was his ministry, revealing what had been hidden. And interestingly, too, in verse 10 of that same chapter in Ephesians, it says, here's the reason, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known. And it's made known to a certain group of people. It says to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's revealing this, and that gets to the last part of verse 12 that we're at. So they served us. Um, and in the, in the unfolding, going back to the book title, the unfolding drama of redemption, uh, the angels have really the best seat in the house for all of that. Preachers, um, they also preached. In fact, what preacher do you think Peter might be referring to specifically? He might be thinking of someone he knows really well. Paul. But he also knew that he preached. In fact, at Pentecost, he preached to people from three of these five provinces, Asia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. Um, And we know he's probably spent time in his travels in those places. Um, Gonna have to, time's probably running out, so I have to hurry. Um, And then the last phrase of verse 12. um, So these preachers preached this good news by the Holy Spirit, and at Pentecost, Peter went through these same things. So let me say this first before I get to angels. Um, 
in Acts chapter 2, verse 29, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, I'm going back to a comment I made, uh, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being, therefore, a prophet, David is a prophet, he says, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. I think maybe Peter thought of David in those prophets. But now we move on to angels who desire to look. It says there, things into which angels long to look. Apparently, there's a lot also that angels do not yet know either. They wait eagerly and watch, longing to see. In fact, uh, the word here would be this. There is two words. One word is the word for desire. And the the word desire is a strong desire. Um, It's also translated lust in some places. But to kind of clean up that thought, in um, Timothy, when it gives the uh, qualifications of an elder, it says if they desire that office, it's the same word there too. So it's, it's a strong, intense word, epithemia. You've probably heard that. These are angels who have this strong desire, and the word that they desire to do is bending, looking down. They desire to bend and look down. This is how intent they are. This is how motivated, how excitable they are about this. They're eager to watch and respond. Now, these angels who are, in most places in Scripture, fearful, because when they appear, the first words you usually hear are, fear not, don't be afraid. Um, So they're not cute so much, or these creatures that we tend to think of. But whatever they are, they love to watch God. They love to glorify God. Um... And you'll remember in Luke 15, when the parable of the lost sheep, when one was lost and was recovered, it says there, Jesus said, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And following that, the parable of the lost coin, Jesus says this, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Because they love what God is doing in salvation. Salvation excites angels and they long to see how it's all going to happen. For them, an unfolding drama of redemption that when we are in heaven, I think the dimensions, the heights, the depths, the breadth, the length of it all will encompass us and consume us and overwhelm us for all eternity. I also love this in Job 38, verses 4 through 7. You don't have to turn, but I'll read it. Uh, uh, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or or what what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And then verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what do angels do? Everything God does, they're the, they're the mass, the myriad, the untold, infinite number of praise givers 
that are just amazed at everything God does. At his creation, at all the wisdom of how he did that. Every time a sinner repents and is saved, and the unfolding drama of redemption as it occurs, and every life God so graciously rescues from wrath and saves to heaven. So angels are amazed at God's work. They're eager to watch him and praise him. And for us, whatever we're going through, whatever God is doing, they're watching that too because they want to praise God for what he's doing. All right. Verse 13. It's not part of what we're teaching, but verse 13. Um, I just want you to know this is leading up to something. So before you give people um, instruction to do something, they really need to hear an understanding. It's very helpful. This is what Peter has done. And I did such a... uh, Uh, a meager uh, job of explaining that. But these readers are being instructed by Peter to see the big picture, to see it from their personal appropriation, to see it from the external perspectives. And then verse 13, he says, there's that famous word, therefore. Why is it there? It's there because of everything he just said. And then he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. I would argue that Peter just did that. He just prepared them, and he just brought some sober thinking to their minds. Uh, It's well and good, and I definitely don't think it's not right that this verse can mean, you know, you probably heard, grow up the loins of your mind and be, you know, bring in all the loose ends and organize yourself and plan your thoughts and plan how you think and think the right things, and, and, and I definitely believe those things would be true but I want to say that in the context of this passage that Peter's actually just did that for them he's preparing their minds by giving them the picture of what their salvation is personal appropriation external perspectives how big it is how deep it is how encompassing it is and being sober-minded whenever you see sober in scripture this word here usually refers to the fact that we're intoxicated with things of the world we're usually um, drunk on our own lives. We're not sober-minded. We're not thinking externally, eternally, or, um, or godly, or biblically. And that's what that sobriety of mind means. And if his readers were following him, that's what they got. Mentally prepared and sober-minded. Then he starts giving them exhortations. And that's for another day to talk about what do believers do in these kind of situations? Sorry, I did all the talking. Any any remarks or um, final comments? My question would be how, what means, what sources do these ancients go to around the prophets, prophets to search out and to seek out the things that we would know? Yeah. That's a nice rhetorical question. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, beyond Scripture. Uh, maybe they were searching other Scriptures to get light on what they had written. Yeah. And prophets that we may not even know because they weren't all recorded who may have um, in, communicated with each other or searched out together. or That's the thing that has come to my mind about it. But I don't know. That's, it is a good question to think through. What would they have really done to search and seek? All right. Anything else?
Well, thank you for your time. Stay warm. It's cold.